Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and this is the Schwepp, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast online at schwepp.net. And today we are speaking with Justin Rogers, Associate Professor of Biblical Studies at Fried Hardeman University in Henderson, Tennessee, and a man who knows a thing or two about the Nachleben, or afterlife, of the works of Philo of Alexandria in Christianity. Justin, thank you so much for being with us. Much appreciated. Well, thank you for having me. So, to get started here, our listeners know who Philo is. They know he's a philosophic Jew of the first century, speaking very roughly because we don't know his dates, living in Alexandria, writing in Greek, reading the Bible in Greek. But he's very important for Christianity. So I thought we could start with an overview. This might come as a surprise to people. Like, why is this guy important to Christianity at all? What did Christians find in his work that was useful to them? Yeah, that's a good a good question. Most of the church fathers who are writing in Greek and who are, who are used to scholarship, they have a philosophical rhetorical education. Uh, they look at the New Testament and a lot of the literature that comes after the New Testament, the Apostolic Fathers, a lot of the Gnostic texts, for example. They look at these as being very different than what they're they're used to in their school scene. And so whenever they saw Philo's works, they could see something that that looked more like the scholarship they were used to. And uh, so in a lot of ways, Philo appeared more familiar to them than even the writings of Paul or certainly the Gospels, which were very different. I know that there are polemics within early Christianity about not Hellenism meaning polytheism, but Hellenism meaning um, this whole educational set of tropes and mores and educational norms and so on and so forth, rhetoric and all the rest of it. Some fathers saying, chuck it out, it's the devil. Yeah. You know, others saying, no, 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 we have to use it for the faith. We have to absorb the good bits of it and move forward. So presumably when Philo is absorbed, it's under that rubric. It's like he's a, a thinker within Hellenism, broadly speaking, that we can make use of. Yeah. Uh, Philo is so distinctively writing on the Bible uh, that it becomes uh, one of those things that, uh, okay, so we have these predecessors in, uh, and I, I don't think the question of whether Philo was a Jew or a Christian really comes up in the early uh, stages, but uh, he's a thinker writing on the Bible, but he's thinking about the Bible and writing on the Bible the way that we would like to do that. Uh, whereas some of the other early Christian texts uh, really were not. And so uh, this is more of an audience who is interested in uh, doing biblical scholarship. Philo sort of teaches them how to do that. Uh, The negative attitude toward Greek education, Greek rhetoric, especially Greek philosophy, uh, that really develops later. Okay. Uh, And those are people generally who are not interested in reading Philo in the first place. Right. So we're talking about early Christians in general here. Let's get let's get some names. Let's get specific. Mostly when we talk about the reception history of Philo, it begins with Clement of Alexandria, uh, who uh, lived at the end of the second, early third century. And uh, prior to that, uh, we have really very little knowledge of Christian use of Philo. Uh, there's a big gap. Uh, really, Josephus, we know, was aware of the works of Philo, and he used them, but of course he's a Jew. And after Josephus, there's really no other thinker who makes explicit reference to Philo until Clement of Alexandria. And he refers to uh, Philo, I think, four times, but they're all in the first two books of the Stromates. So it starts with Clement, and then it really advances beyond that to a number of other thinkers as well. That is really interesting because, um, well, I'd like to ask you a couple questions about Clement, but just to, to make an observation... 
the Stroma Tes is fascinating to scholars of specifically esotericism and esoteric Christianity because it's Clement's work where he is explicitly writing esoterically. He says, yeah. I've mixed this work up on purpose so that the truths hidden within it are not immediately apparent. You have to do the work to find it out lest I be giving a dagger to a child, <laughs> which is pretty awesome. And it's very, perhaps significant, perhaps just striking that that's where he happens to mention Philo of all places. Yeah. But I'll leave yeah. that there. Now, Clement is a fascinating character and we will be talking about him on the podcast. Is he seen as a canonical church father across the board? By modern scholars, you mean? Well, by modern, uh, let's say by modern churches. Yeah, well, no. No. Uh, right. I mean, a lot of the authors who do use Philo end up being uh, explicitly denounced as heretics uh, at some point in church history, some quite early, such as Origen and Didymus the Blind. So presumably his uh, peculiar angelology and other things might have had something to do with that. Let's not give away too much now, but you mentioned two other names there, Origen and Didymus the Blind. Who are these guys? Yeah, Origen followed Clement in Alexandria, at least for a little while. Later in his career, uh, around the year 232 or so, he moved to Caesarea, where he finished out the rest of his life and uh, apparently took part of his library, uh, perhaps all of his library, with him. And that provides some interesting uh, speculations on the transmission of Philo's works. Uh, and Didymus the Blind was a thinker. Uh, who lived in Alexandria in the 4th century. His life pretty much spans the entirety of the 4th century, born in about 313, dies in about 398. Uh, both of those uh, thinkers are very heavily influenced by Philo. So we've stayed at sort of the Alexandrian mode up until this point. Yeah. And do we see Philo seeping out of Alexandria? Obviously, Josephus wasn't stuck in Alexandria, but, but in our yeah. Christian period, do we have Philo popping up in Rome and other places in, in textual transmission? We do. The transmission of Philo's works from Alexandria to Caesarea is usually associated with Origen's move uh, from one to the other city. And that would explain the use of Philo uh, in the works of Eusebius of Caesarea, uh, who makes extensive use of Philo as well. Uh, but Ambrose of Milan, uh, a Latin father of the fourth century, he's the first Latin church father who uses Philo, uh, at least extensively, and he uses him quite extensively. It's been estimated that there are over 600 references to Philo in Ambrose. And in fact, five of Ambrose's treatises follow very closely. They could be regarded as loose paraphrases of treatises Philo himself wrote. Wow. And so we don't really know uh, if Philo is known in Rome already in the first century by Josephus. Perhaps there was some kind of Philonic collection in Rome that just sat around. We don't know much about it, uh, but when we get to Ambrose, all of a sudden in this part of the world, here's Philo again. So he's been around somewhere. Yeah. How exactly you get from Josephus to Ambrose is an excellent question. Presumably Josephus could have um, picked up a Greek works of Philo in the Holy Land before he came to Rome as well, right? Yeah, presumably, uh, wh whether Philo's works actually made it to the Holy Land that early, it's it's difficult to know. We do know Philo makes a trip from Alexandria to uh, Rome, where he serves as the head of an embassy to Caligula on behalf of the Alexandrian Jews. And so it's possible that Philo wrote a number of works himself while he was in Rome, and those works remained there. And maybe he even brought some of his previous works penned in Alexandria as well. And that's how Josephus could have known them. So we can connect Philo between Alexandria and, and Rome directly. Uh, we cannot connect Philo, at least in terms of a literary corpus, between Alexandria and the Holy Land. In fact, 
uh, he went to Jerusalem, as far as we know, maybe only one time in his entire life. Let's go back to the earliest use of Philo by Christian writers, because something tells me that there's going to be a lot of differences between a Clement and an Ambrose, who's, yeah. who's you know, just rinsing Philo into a, into a much more fully, writing in the fourth century, so a much more fully developed Orthodox Christianity. So what does Clement do with Philo? Well, for the most part, uh, Clement seems to depend on Philo for certain themes. Um, one of the most interesting statements Clement makes about Philo is he calls him a Pythagorean. And uh, there has been quite a lot of discussion about exactly what that's supposed to mean, especially since he refers to another Hellenistic Jewish author who lived prior to Philo, a man by the name of Aristobulus. Clement refers to him as a peripatetic. And so there's uh, a little bit of uh, confusion uh, among scholars about what exactly we are to make of that. But in any case, uh, Clement seems to use Philo really for biblical themes that are fleshed out in in, uh, allegorical interpretations. So Clement is interested in Philo's allegorical reading. Why does he call him a Pythagorean? I mean, Philo does have some what you might call arithmological stuff in his work, but it hardly seems enough for a, for a well-educated guy like Clement and well-read and, you know, sort of au fait with the philosophical scene to call him a Pythagorean. That being said, everyone associates that kind of stuff with Pythagoras, with the name of Pythagoreanism. If you have, if you say something like the number six is perfect, everyone goes, aha, Pythagoras. So it could be as simple as that, I suppose. So we have a little reference in Clement. And then what about Oregon? What does he do? Well, Origen uses Philo pretty comprehensively, it seems, but he only refers to him by name three times. The majority of times, and this is a reference that you'll find over 20 times in Origen's writings, he refers to Philo as a predecessor or one of uh, our predecessors or something of that nature. And uh, what it seems to indicate is that Origen is placing himself within a tradition of exegesis that goes back at least as far as Philo, and perhaps uh, who knows what origin means by this, maybe even to the Bible itself. This is the the kind of commentary style of literature where the author is very self-consciously placing themselves in a tradition of exegesis that they're aware precedes them. And so maybe there's not such a claim of originality, but uh, the fact that he doesn't mention Philo more than he does is a curious question. But Origen uses Philo for much more specific things. Uh, Clement uses him for the allegorical interpretation of the vestments of the high priest and Hagar and Sarai and things of that nature. Uh, Origen will use him for uh, more specific interpretations, especially in the book of Numbers, Genesis, of course, as well. Uh, And he'll use him in commentaries. He will use him in homilies. So it doesn't appear, at least by the time Origen gets to Caesarea, the audience is scandalized by his references to Philo because these are common people who are hearing his sermons who hear the name of Philo. So it's an interesting thing to consider Origen's use of Philo because of that, because it's it's just so much part of everything that he's doing. Uh, whether it's high-level exegetical work that's sponsored by uh, these wealthy patrons or whether it's sermons. When you say he's using Philo for exegesis, does that mean he's looking at Philo and saying, here's a passage in the book of Numbers, and here's exactly how Philo interprets it. I'm going to take that and just repeat it. Or is he saying, I like what you did with the book of Numbers, Philo. I'm going to do something similar over here in this other biblical text and do my own interpretation in a Philonic style. Or is he doing a bit of both? 
he does he does a little bit of both there are times where he actually will cite philo and disagree with him mm. uh, in fact the only time origen refers to a specific philonic work by name he refers to the uh, quad deterius on the worst uh, is want to attack the better uh, the laborious english title is um <laughs> origen in his commentary on matthew refers to this text specifically and he says this is what philo says now by the way that's not right and he goes on to offer his own interpretation so there are times where he will cite philo and then say he's wrong about this but for the most part uh, he will refer to philo anonymously as one of the predecessors and then move on to another point himself he doesn't usually cite philo and then go on to continue philonic exegesis as much as uh, he cites him and moves on. It, it's almost in place of Origen's own interpretation. And other church fathers do that too with, with sources. Got it. Now, what about Didymus the Blind? Probably this gentleman will not get a whole episode devoted right. to him, unlike Clement in Oregon. So maybe you should just introduce Didymus with his uh, evocative name, the Blind, and tell us about him a little bit. Uh, Didymus, the, the sources actually disagree as to whether he was born blind or he was blinded as a result of an accident at a young age. Uh, but Didymus was really famous in his own time. In fact, Rufinus and Jerome uh, studied with him and regarded him very highly. Jerome actually seems to change his opinion on Didymus later in life, as he does on Origen. But Didymus uses the, the name of Philo uh, nine times, I believe, in his commentaries, the, the works of Didymus that survive were discovered in the 1940s in Tura, Egypt, uh, and they're running commentaries on books uh, of the Old Testament. And so uh, Origen is a, a source as well, but he's only mentioned one time in the works of Didymus anywhere, whereas Philo is mentioned quite a lot more than that. It was fashionable at, at one time for certain scholars to say that Philo became sort of a persona non grata in Alexandrian Christianity in the fourth century uh, because he was associated with Arius and Arian teaching and whatnot. And if that is the case, then the works of Didymus the Blind are anomalous because it proves that Didymus could still quote Philo even by name and then use him far more than he quotes him uh, and it not scandalize his audience at all. And Didymus is probably writing these works between the 360s and the 380s, so quite a, a you know, far into the 4th century, in fact. Wow. Um, before we carry on with the 4th century, let's take a little side detour into uh, Arianism, which is always a good idea. What evidence do we have for Arian's reading? I should say, for listeners, Arian Christianity was, in this later period of late antiquity, sort of the big competitor for which would be the Orthodox churches. So what later became Catholic stroke Orthodox Christianity versus the Arian heresy in retrospect. At the time, the Arians obviously didn't see themselves as a heresy. And they basically denied the divinity of Christ, did they not? Yeah, Arius uh, supposedly said that Jesus Christ was a created being, and therefore he was able to maintain the total unity of the Father uh, and excluded the Son from from that relationship, whereas it becomes an emerging position with the works of Athanasius and people who followed him that uh, there is this sort of three-in-one Trinitarian business taking place. Uh, but all of that is still getting worked out whenever whenever Arius is alive. Right. So that's a little bit of a background. Now, why would people associate Philo's work with the Arians? Well, Philo has quite a lot of statements uh, to try to uh, maintain the unity of God of course, as a Jew, he has no interest in arguing for any sort of Trinitarian uh, thought, but uh, he, will, he will say things like the Logos is a second God, 
uh, although people dispute exactly how seriously to take that, uh, but things of that nature. And so Philo became kind of a useful thinker, especially for those who wanted to interpret Jesus as the Logos via the Gospel of John. They could take Philo's works and see that all that he talked about with regard to the Stoic Logos, because in Philo, the Logos very much is a Stoic figure, uh, but then transfer that immediately to uh, the person of Jesus. And since Philo distinguishes God, or uh, whom uh, Philo calls the one who is, uh, he distinguishes the Logos, of course, from God so carefully, Arian thinkers would have been drawn, presumably, to Philo. Now, we don't have any direct evidence that Arius did, in fact, use Philo right. or put forth Philo as a predecessor of his theology or anything, but uh, modern scholars have tried to make that claim from time to time. Okay. Um, you can see what the threat would have been, though. People would have looked at it and gone, oh, I don't like this Logos doctrine at all. I thought we had the, the Logos hashed out, that it was Jesus and Jesus is God and now this is potentially a problem. Okay, just to talk a bit more about names, I'm very fascinated by this move into the Latin world with Ambrose writing in Rome. In the 4th century, like Didymus, so late antiquity in full flower, Christianity is, is really taking form at this stage. You've had the reforms of Constantine, you've had Christianity become a very dominant force in the Roman Empire, you've had the Council of Nicaea, so you have the first attempts to kind of really nail down what it is to be Orthodox or Catholic, depending on uh, your terminology. And you have this Latin author, Ambrose, using Philo to the hilt. So tell us about that. What does he do with Philo? Well, Ambrose uses Philo pretty heavily in several of the treatises that he writes. He, For example, uh, one of Philo's treatises talks about Cain and Abel and the relationship described in Genesis chapter 4 and Ambrose just more or less paraphrases it, of course, in Latin. I think that Ambrose could do something like this, whereas maybe Greek authors couldn't, because by this point in the West, uh, Latin-speaking authors may not necessarily read Greek anymore, at least as well as they would have in an earlier period. And so Ambrose can take a Greek work, paraphrase it in Latin, and not be accused of cribbing any lines or literary theft or something like this. Uh, Jerome makes a career out of doing a lot of this himself, in fact, a little bit later. So Ambrose is doing things that only a Latin author really would have done, but he's really into allegorical interpretation, and Philo provides a means for that. Not to say that Ambrose doesn't change a little Philo here and there, uh, but he certainly does. Also, his letters... Uh, he uses Philo in certain letters quite extensively as well, especially when there's an exegetical question that is being addressed. He sometimes will paraphrase large blocks of Philo. But Ambrose, interestingly, while he uh, uses Philo perhaps more than any early Christian author, he refers to him by name only one time. That's really interesting. That does make you wonder a little bit about where commentary and philosophical tradition and philosophical dialogue becomes plagiarism doesn't it? If he's not mentioning the guy's name hardly at all, but craving right. huge amounts of his work. Because if you were saying Philo, 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 and doing this, you could say, ah, this is great. He's making a handy Latin language compendium of Philo's works that are useful for Christians that all these non-Greek speaking Latin Christians can use. Well done, Ambrose. But if he's leaving out the Philo part, it suddenly becomes like, hang on a minute, Ambrose. Yeah. What are you doing here? Yeah. Well, there was very little knowledge of Philo probably in the Latin West at this time. That, that's an assumption on my part, but I, I think that that's a, a fair one. And so Ambrose, he doesn't have to worry about the threat 
because there there aren't a lot of literary opponents who know Philo well enough to recognize where he's getting this stuff. Mm. And do you think, so, this, speculating irresponsibly, do you think yeah. <laughs> he had access to a Philonic corpus in Latin then that he was cribbing from? Or do you think he was doing the translations from Greek? Yeah, translations from Greek, probably, okay. yeah. Yeah, so he got a hold of the Greek text somehow, did the Latin. It could have been, like I said, all the way back in uh, the time of Josephus, Philo's works were known in Rome. And even though we cannot document their survival between Josephus and Ambrose, uh, it may have been that they were just kind of in the air floating around somewhere. Really a different, a radically different world than where we started. If we think we started in Hellenistic period, the late Hellenistic period in Alexandria, and now we are in the transformed Christian Roman Empire heading into the Middle Ages full bore. And we've seen some of the development of people's uses of the Philonic text. I wonder if you can kind of finish off that part of our story and say what happens next. Does Philo go on being read in the Christian churches? or He does. Uh, Philo, first of all, by the time you get to the late 4th century, you have very different opinions finally start to make themselves known about Philo and his influence and whether or not he's actually dangerous to read for Christians. So you have the Cappadocian fathers, Basil, Gregory of Nazianzus, and Gregory of Nyssa, who are still using Philo, Gregory of Nyssa more than the other two. Uh, but they're making positive use of Philo, but they also seem at times to keep him sort of at arm's length. Whereas you have uh, the so-called Antiochene fathers, uh, Theodore of Mopsuestia and people like this, Theodoret, uh, who, who are associating Philo really with heresy uh, altogether. And in fact, uh, Theodore of Mopsuestia uh, uh, believes that uh, Origen was corrupted by reading Philo. And you have in a later Syriac father called Barhad Bashaba, uh, the allegation that Philo is the very beginning. He's the start of the Alexandrian Christian school. And so you have this attempt to say, well, yeah, Origen is a heretic. And the reason why is because he was just too heavily influenced by Philo. And what he should have done is read his Bible more and Philo less, basically. Uh, so Philo becomes more of a controversial figure in the 4th and 5th and 6th centuries than he was before. But then again, you see him even later showing up in the Catani. What are the catenae? The catenae are chains, is what the term means, the chains that uh, really are associated with this running commentary on the biblical text. And so you'll have excerpts from various church fathers who are quoted. And uh, sometimes, even in the Byzantine text, Philo will be Philo the bishop. He has been converted then, so he's sufficiently sanitized to be quoted in Christian commentary at that wow. point. That's amazing. So this is uh, the closest thing you have to a sort of um, Christian Talmud, in a way, just layer upon right. layer of commentary and different commenters commenting on each other in this, this vast body of knowledge. So Philo actually gets domesticated to the point where someone thinks he's a bishop, of presumably of Alexandria. Of course, in the many medieval contexts, you will have an uh, analogous thing happening with Aristotle, where people start to talk about Aristotle as orthodox, and Aristotle right. as the orthodox Christian philosopher, and so on and so forth. So Philo his star never really sets, it seems like. He's used by so many big names, some of whom do get tossed by the wayside, like notably Oregon, who's, who's just right. very influential in his day and then becomes a complete outcast because of certain of his teachings. But others like Eusebius and Ambrose, who just remain legit canonical church fathers yeah. on both sides of the Orthodox and the Catholic side of things. So yeah. Philo is, is there in the DNA of Christianity. Yeah, especially in Eusebius. Uh, mm. He's 
clearly an important figure for Eusebius. Now, in the, in all of this domestication and or excision of Philo from the developing Christian world, what is made of the fact that he's a Jew? Now, that's a, an intriguing question because it doesn't seem to come up until later in Christian history. The earliest sources really don't discuss his Jewishness much at all. Clement and Origen, uh, they don't seem to be concerned too much with this. And Eusebius is really where it becomes explicit for the first time. But in Eusebius's case, uh, Philo, I think, is sanitized because he is the primary reference to these people known as the Therapeutae. Philo writes an entire treatise called On the Contemplative Life about these, uh, as Eusebius reads it, at least these early Christian monks who live outside of Alexandria. And Philo provides sort of an idealized portrait of who these people were. And in Philo's mind, they're, they're simply a, a sect of highly philosophically minded Jews. But Eusebius takes that and makes them into the first Christians. And so Philo uh, meets Peter uh, in Rome, for example, in Eusebius. Philo knows the Therapeutae, who are the very first Christians, according to Eusebius, in uh, Egypt. And so uh, Philo becomes a primary historical reference point for Eusebius, for the history of Christianity. And so I, I think in, in Eusebius, you really get the seeds for what becomes the uh, Philo-Christianus uh, legend that developed that at a later time. Now, do you think Eusebius is making this stuff up or is he has he heard stories about this stuff and he's sort of stitching yeah, it together? That's a, that's a good question as to whether Eusebius uh, reads the Therapeutae and says, man, that sounds like Christians and so it must be Christians. Uh, or whether there's some kind of uh, interpretive tradition that led Eusebius to believe that. Uh, it seems, at least to me, uh, other people might disagree, but that Eusebius is just making it all up. That his sources for early Egyptian Christianity are not very good, and so he takes what he does have and sort of stretches it beyond the bounds of what even Eusebius himself would have recognized as good history. Eusebius does this uh, a, a couple of, of times with Philo just by throwing these things out like, oh, by the way, he met Peter in Rome. Well, what are we supposed to make of that? Uh, yeah. the, the only point uh, for sharing that information is to give Philo more credibility. Yeah, the chronology works or potentially could work, I suppose. It's not yeah. impossible. It's not like, um, you know, these sort of really absurd, this guy met this guy that you get in late into. Like, for example, in um, Yamblichus's Life of Pythagoras that I'm very familiar with, there's all kinds yeah. of people meeting who could never have met because they're like 300 right. years apart. So at least, the, at least the dating works. Do you think, vis-a-vis -vis Clement and Oregon, let me put what I find an intriguing speculation to you. I'll just flag it as such. It's just a speculation. Tell me what you think of it. It might be complete nonsense, might be something we can't say, or maybe there's something in it. Could it be that Clement and Oregon don't make a big deal out of the fact that he's Jewish? In part because while they are writing prior to Nicaea, in among a hugely Jewish milieu in Alexandria, which will have been host to every single possible flavor of the whole spectrum from the most hardcore traditionalist Jews right the way over to the most wacky Christians and everything in between, and a huge number of people that would be called Jewish Christians, right? Yeah. Could they still be seeing Christianity to some degree as a Jewish thing? And so Philo's like one of us. Well, I, I think they could be looking at Judaism and Christianity as much more intermingled than we typically think of it today. But I really think it has more to do, in Clement and also in Origen, whenever they talk about Jews, 
generally speaking, they're talking about people who interpret the scriptures literally. Hmm. And so they, they, they read the scriptures and they, they look at the surface level only. They don't really dig underneath to the more uh, esoteric kinds of meanings uh, that you find in, say, a philo and what Clement and Origen are trying to communicate to their audience, what, what uh, Clement will call the true Gnostic, the reader who recognized the underlying meaning of the scriptures. And, and so I think for them, it's really bad for them to associate Philo with Judaism, because that would be calling Philo in their mind something he's not, namely a literalist. Right. For them, Philo is closer than most of the Christians who probably preceded them, excepting perhaps the Gnostics. That's fascinating. So the criterion becomes not what we might expect, ethnicity or confessional affiliation, but esoteric interpretation. If you're esoteric, you're with us, buddy. Yeah. And if you're, yeah. <laughs> um, well, there are many there are many movements within early Christianity that can be described as esoteric in one way or another, and we'll be discussing them in the podcast. But I do feel like the Clement Oregon um, transmission was a really really fascinating phenomenon, coming where it did, when it did, um, where it came in the formation of Christianity, and bringing in so many weird and interesting uh, intellectual currents, and just being completely wacky and esoteric. I wanted to ask you a kind of summation question on this theme of esoteric interpretation, because very often when looking at late antique and medieval Christian scriptural exegesis writ broadly, you come across this idea of four-level interpretation, that every scriptural passage has four or at least four legitimate ways of reading. So there's the, the literal sense of the text, which means that this really happened and such a prophet actually did this and blah. And then there's three kind of levels of um, deeper meaning, which you can extract. Right. How much of this goes back to Philo? How much of this do we owe to Philo? Yeah, that's a a good question. I I think a scholar by the name of Wolfson uh, argued uh, years ago that Philo was sort of the fountainhead for all of of Christian philosophy. I I think most scholars would be uh, maybe not so enthusiastic about that proposition. Uh, It seems, though, that Philo does recognize sort of this dualistic level on which the scriptures communicate. You do have the literal meaning, which has value. Uh, You know, in the the, um, Hellenistic allegorical tradition, uh, to allegorize a text, at least theoretically, is to sort of deny its literal meaning. Uh, Whereas in Philo, you have the retention of the literal meaning while also having the allegorical meaning, which sort of is based on, on the one hand, the literal interpretation but on the other hand, really goes underneath it to something more fundamentally true, more helpful, more esoteric. And so when you get to Origen, uh, he basically follows that model, Clement as well, that you you have the surface level meaning, which may be appropriate for certain readers who just aren't prepared to engage the deeper sense. But then you, by employing allegory, can get to those uh, deeper meanings. And Origen will break that down into three in his day, Prankippi's three levels of meaning corresponding to the, you know, the body, the soul, and the spirit and whatnot. That really moves beyond where Philo uh, had, had spoken, but still very close. Uh, and then it develops even from there into the four levels that you talk about, which are, which are familiar from the Middle Ages. That's a really, really interesting point that you raise there. When um, the ancient Stoics or Plato read Homer, for example, as you say, they're concerned to, on the one hand, 
make something valuable out of it. So they discuss right. it in terms of representing physics or metaphysics or something like that. But on the other hand, they want to get rid of the embarrassing cover story. They're like, okay, no, we yeah. don't actually think Zeus had illegitimate children with humans because that's disgusting and that's not worthy of the gods. Well, Philo's not making the move of saying, we don't really think this Cain and Abel story ever happened because that's horrible and why would God do that? And it must be just an allegory. No, it did happen and it has a deeper meaning. Right. I have to say that both Philo and the early Christians are a bit inconsistent there. They, they would not retain the literal meaning of every scriptural text, but they do retain the literal meaning of many scriptural texts. Every text has uh, at least the two levels of meaning, or at least one level of meaning, the allegorical, but some have two, the literal and the allegorical. Okay. And are there any recognizable criteria for chucking the literal? Well, uh, yeah, uh, th whether they actually ever talk about this, like here, here is why we reject these. It, it's usually, though, you remember from Aristotle's poetics, you know, he has these five categories from which critical ob objections are drawn. And uh, that framework basically serves for both Philo and for early Christians as well. Usually it just has to do with the absurdity of something. Uh, we can't believe this just like uh, you know, Hera getting a chair for Helen of Troy or something, you, you know, it's just so absurd, it couldn't happen. And therefore, we reject it on that basis alone. The problem, of course, with that is it becomes highly subjective. What one person regards as absurd, another thinker might actually try to figure out how to interpret literally with value. So you do get a bit of disagreement on what can be and cannot be literal, even among the Christian interpreters themselves. All right. Well, with that, Justin Rogers, thank you very much for being on the Schwepp. Much appreciated. I've really enjoyed this interview. Yeah, thank you for having me. And uh, stay esoteric. <laughs> <laughs>